welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. For the first segment of today's show, I'll be joined by local freelance cinematographer David Sikora for a conversation about two films that have helped shape his love of cinema, Oliver Stone's 1994 blood-soaked satire Natural Born Killers and Darren Aronofsky's 2000 hallucinogenic drama Requiem for a Dream. We'll talk about David's background and experience in movies, some of the challenges and benefits of being a New Haven-based filmmaker, and about how these two bitter, explosively inventive films have influenced his approach to watching, enjoying, and making movies. For the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by Madison Art Cinema's director Arnold Gorlick for a review of I Am Not Your Negro, Raoul Peck's new Oscar-nominated documentary about an unfinished book project by James Baldwin that explores the that great American writer's thoughts on the assassinations of three of his close friends during the 1960s, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. But first, I'm very excited to welcome to the show David Sikora. David is a freelance cinematographer from New Haven and a first-time guest on Deep Focus and someone who's listened to the show before, so three of my favorite things. David, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's uh, very nice to be here. I'm excited. All right, so we met about nine months ago. Uh, in July of 2016, during the 48-hour film project New Haven, which is this annual two-day competition to make a short film related to uh, a certain character and line and prop and fitting within a genre, and you were working as the lead cinematographer for Russ Martin's Enormity Pictures team. Uh, and this wasn't your your first time at 48. You had also won an, an award for best cinematography the year before. So I wonder if we could begin our conversation and maybe if you could introduce yourselves to our listeners a bit by telling us um, how you came to be involved with the 48-hour film project and and what it is that you did for Kelly and Russ's teams. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the the deep background of it is uh, I've been working as a cinematographer for uh, the past eight years or so. Um, and working in Connecticut, it's a pretty tight-knit group of filmmakers uh it's not as blooming as say new york or la so it's easy to make connections and this was about two years ago when i did my first 48 hour i was approached by uh russ martin to or i'm sorry by kelly uh to do hers and um it's something that i was on board with the the main reason is you have 48 hours to write shoot edit a film um so one of the benefits of that is you know you never have enough time on film sets so this just pushes you. It's a filmmaking exercise, and you can let little things go that you would really, you know, torture yourself over on a bigger set. And you can have fun, sharpen your skills, and it's just a uh, balls to the wall, for lack of a better word. Yeah, there's so many teams that participate in New Haven, and we should say that 48 uh, happens in cities all around the world. I think it's like Correct. 100 plus cities, uh, and in New Haven alone, there are maybe 15, 25 teams that competed last year, and each team has a like very different background uh, and kind of professional or amateur experience with making movies and a very different approach to making the movie. The year before I followed um, one team of, you know, cine enthusiasts, but people who were not professional filmmakers. And it was a real trip following you and Russ around because this wasn't just, uh, you know, a group of five friends who were looking to have fun over the course of a weekend, but also just... Um, you know, however serious the other teams take it, it's still ultimately like an amateur exercise. You guys are kind of a bunch of pros, and you were—you <laughs> really had you know a team of dozens of people, of gaffers, of electricians, of people working lights and cameras. And what uh, what is it? What was your role? I mean, for people who may not be familiar with what cinematographers do uh, on a film set, what what is it that you did on Russ Martin's team? Uh, well, the the basic job of a cinematographer is to. Uh take care of the visual elements of the story. Uh, and that breaks down to a number of different factors. Um, first off, we want to find out what our story is. What are we trying to tell the audience? Uh, what emotions we want to convey? Um, and I would work with the director uh, and production designer and pretty much the entire crew to figure out, you know, how should we frame things? Should we use camera movement? Um, that type of thing, the art and the theory of it. Uh, then when it comes down to the technical things, the technical side, I work with a key grip and a gaffer uh, to set the lighting, to set any kind of camera movement, that type of thing, and then work with my camera department to, you know, get everything set up, pick a lens, place the camera, and it's uh, it's an overarching uh, control of the visual element of the film is what a cinematographer does. 
And it's quite, I mean, can be, I was, you know, as again, an amateur entry into this world, it, it's a surprisingly kind of scientific process for me to witness. And that the very first thing you do upon getting on set is measuring light intes- intensity, right? It's not just a matter of yeah. framing and kind of realizing <laughs> the sketches you had made the night before, but really uh, take, you know, taking an assessment of your environment, especially <laughs> when you're working, uh, you know, on site as opposed to on some, you know, set that's fabricated within a studio or something. I mean, you're really... Uh, I remember the the forty eight hour cinematographer's constant battle is with with light coming through right, the, especially at this oh, beautiful boy. house that you guys had in in Having Milford. Bad yeah, now. it was it's incredible. Um, but the the way that I um, kind of divided your responsibilities in my head as I was thinking about how we talk about your work on the show uh, is there's one set of responsibilities on set when you are working the camera people, when you're kind of managing your whole crew and working with the director to help realize his vision, but also making sure, as you were saying, you know, overseeing the visual storytelling of the film. But then there's the night before when you're, uh, I don't know if every cinematographer does this, but you were kind of central to coming up with what you guys were going to you know, what story you're going to tell in the first place. You know, you're lying on the couch, eating Hawaiian pizza, making sketches, <laughs> and, and you know, uh, so as not to curse on FM radio, just kind of BSing, but in the best possible way, it's kind of spitballing ideas. Mm-hmm. Is that, is, do you find that a cinematographer is usually that central to the, um, I guess that's the kind of pre-production stage of making movies? That's more of a luxury when it comes to the 48 hour, uh, where, you know, when you start the contest, you are at, you know, point one, you're at the genesis of the story. Um, so being that um, I have to to be the one that's actually going to technically film this, uh, it helps to have my input when we're on such a tor- short time frame as to what the story can be, what's going to be easier to manage, and how can we, you know, with what 12 hours of shooting, how can we get all the beats? So simplifying the story and helping to shape it is uh, it's not very normal for a cinematographer, but in a 48 hour, it's uh, it's clutch. So the, the 48 hours, one of my favorite times of year as a reporter, just to spend you know as many hours uh, awake and semi-alert as possible following a team around as they make this movie. But I have to admit, my, my favorite time of that the whole competition is the night before, is when everyone stays up uh, kind of through the early hours of the morning and, and thinks about exactly what you were just saying. How are you going to tell the story visually? What is, you know, who, who's going to be in the movie? Where are you going to find the props and all that stuff? It's the and, point of most optimism. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, kind of similar to uh, maybe the themes we'll get at when we talk about two of the movies you picked, but there's sure. a moment of uh, of kind of like manic idealism and then that <laughs> is, you are disabused of that idealism pretty soon uh, after the sun rises. But uh, what, there are three <laughs> things that I learned about you that that really stuck with me and that I loved. So I'm going to, let's see if you remember divulging these when we were talking. One is the, your love of Hawaiian pizza. Oh, the Hawaiian goodness, pizza was yes. a very important, so this is uh, ham, pineapple, hot sauce, well done. Jalapenos. Jalapenos. Uh, also, your love of hot sauce. Oh, Once yeah. a year, traveling down to, I had in my notes, the Tijuana Florida. Flats yeah, that's right. in Florida that's to pick right. up hot sauce. And then the third, and this is the thing that I think is an even more relevant transition into what we're going to be talking about today, uh, is your, you know, your absolute love for movies. We were talking about yeah. your some of your favorites, Cronenberg, PTA, uh, Stanley Kubrick, and you said that, I just love this image, you said you have two unopened Stanley Kubrick DVDs oh, at correct. home. Uh, Killer's Kiss and... Fear and Desire. Fear and Desire. And you keep those unopened because if you ever lose your love of cinema, you know <laughs> that there's always something in the vaults that you can go to by your favorite film. It's the Tom Hanks castaway, the package he doesn't open. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't know if I have so much a question around that observation. Is just, can you maybe explain like what... Like in, you know, we talked a lot about your favorite movies and filmmakers... But th- I just love that idea of having two movies. Like, wh- what is it that, I don't know, wh- why do you have that treasure trove of, uh, Kub- of unopened Kubrick <coughs> movies? Uh, like, what, what does that do for you? Well, um, so uh, for a long time, ever since um, probably film school, I discovered Kubrick. And for the longest, he's been, in my opinion, uh, the best filmmaker that we've had and, you know, since film came about. Uh, my personal favorite. And it was really tough when I realized I'd gone through his entire catalog and there were but two movies and a documentary that I had left. And then, you know, I think this guy's already dead. If I watch these, I will never have the experience of sitting down and watching a Kubrick film. Um, 
So I figured I still have a couple of years on the earth. Maybe I could just stretch it out and not make it so final that I've watched all his films just yet. You know, I think that gets at like this tension that I love about movies and it maybe about the 48 in particular is that on the one hand, especially when like time is the key element in 48, I, planning and improvisation are two things that you have to balance kind of perfectly. And that one, you have to know kind of exactly or as much as possible, you have to know exactly who's going to be involved uh, how you're going to get to where you need to go, and and do you have the equipment necessary and the story written out? But on the other, you know, there's this set deadline, and you have to improv. You have to deal with problems that you weren't expecting that arise uh, to make this final thing. So there's you know planning and improvisation. But then on the flip side, you're right. Once a movie's done, it's kind of a a permanent thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's why you know, unlike with with theater or other perform- narrative performance art. Uh, which, you know, the beauty of it is in how ephemeral it is. I mean, it happens and then it's gone. Uh, Here with movies, there's kind of a a permanent and kind of unchanging thing that results from it. And I love that, you know, you're right with Kubrick. I mean, you're not, we're not going to see another Kubrick movie because there is no more Kubrick. And these, these relics are, are that they're kind of unchanging to think. Now there are documentaries that are always going to come out about Kubrick, but yeah, I mean, in your in that, before we jump into the movies that you picked to talk about, as you think about your role as the kind of chief, like kind of visual realizer on a set, how do you balance that tension between improving, planning, and then knowing that what you're going to do, you can't always go back and like change. It's kind of it's kind of set, or maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you can always edit something. No, it's a it's a bitter pill to swallow. Uh, I don't think I can look at any of my work without. Uh, picking it apart and saying, oh, if only we had a little more time, only if we had done that differently. Um, but to a certain degree, I think that's kind of uh, what makes movies magical is there are these things that happen that are unplanned. You're not expecting them. And um, I'd say I'm a little bit of a pessimist, so I'll say it's a 50-50 split, but 50% of the time it's something great that's happening magically. Other times it's something you have to work around. Um, but that this thing of you don't have enough time, but you have a plan and you have to compromise there that usually does lead to improvisation. And from improvisation, you have creativity and something new. You're surprised by something that you didn't expect uh, as much foresight as you had uh, something brand new comes up and you love it. And then from there that influences the entirety of the shoot. You know, if you get a little kernel of gold, well, let's work around that. Let's manipulate what we had already planned into something that works with this. You know, I'm not sure as to the working methods of the directors we're going to talk about, but I think that's a perfect transition into these two movies you've picked to talk <laughs> about today because talk about films that offer something new and especially for audiences, something completely unexpected and and <laughs> depending on your perspective, either upsetting or really exciting and energizing. But before we jump into those two movies, I want to say you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, <clears throat> New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen. And I'm very happy to be talking with local freelance cinematographer, David Sikora. So every now and then, uh, I love to bring friends, filmmakers, just people who I know are interested in movies on the show. And we talk about movies that have shaped their kind of love of and understanding of cinema. Um, and it's particularly great for me to talk to people who make movies because I want to know like how, how has what you've you know, watched influenced your own approach to making movies, if there is ever like a direct line. But let's, let's talk about the, the movies themselves first. So the first one you picked is Natural Born Killers, uh, Oliver Stone's 1994 satire that stars Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis as Mickey and Mallory Knox, a husband and wife team of mass murderers who become media sensations through their romantic story of independence, enduring love, and insatiable violence. Uh, I feel like the tone of this movie is best captured by an interview in the middle of it with a, mm-hmm. this starry-eyed college student interviewed during a TV special about the couple who says with complete candor, Mickey and Mallory Knox are the best things to happen to mass murder since Charles Manson. <laughs> um, so before we, uh, maybe it's the entry into discussion of this movie, why did why'd you pick this movie to be uh, one that we talked about today? Um, well, there's uh, a number of reasons. I think for me, photographically, this is one of the boldest movies that I've seen. Um, when I watch it, it feels like when they were making this film, um, they didn't have a safety net. And it was literally what we had touched on, that uh, you have a plan and then things go awry and you have to improvise. This movie feels like it is almost 100% improvisation. Um, it is just so all over the place when it comes to um, the unorthodox lighting, which is very characteristic of Robert Richardson, the cinematographer. 
um, the changing of formats, the editing. Altogether, the picture is very disorientating, but it does um, push a feeling on you at the end of it. It all does come together, but it is hectic and frantic. And um, visually, there's some stuff in there that I just love and I adore. So it's so interesting that you you identify this. I mean, I agree that the the visual style is one of the key takeaways of Natural Born Killers, and I think that it almost it kind of harkens back to like the very beginning of like that concept of montage, like those mm. Soviet era, like Eisenstein and Dovchenko, and the way mm. that they are just throwing almost like single frames of images at you. You don't see, I mean, especially towards the end, as the the story climaxes, and we realize that these uh, you know these pictures of of kind of devils and blood-soaked villains and uh, visions of past abusers are not necessarily just happening like in the far reaches of these characters subconscious like it is completely overtaken their reality uh it's like this is editing is always something that i think of as very carefully planned and that it's not you know just kind of turn the camera on and see what happens but rather you're in the i mean to a certain extent this movie is really like the, the the real hit of this movie is accomplished in the editing room. I Absolutely. feel by um, I, who knows how many shots they use, but it's it's an unfathomable amount. And this, you're right. You're right to single out Robert Richardson, who worked with Oliver Stone a few years earlier in JFK, which also uh, employs montage in a phenomenal way. Where as we go back to all of the different conspiracy theories that Kevin Costner's character is contemplating for the assassination of, assassination of JFK, we're just bombarded with uh, these visual stimuli, and and we get that here in a very mm. different context, but. I mean, when do you think of? I, I'm not sure what your experience with editing, if any, is. But is that as? Im, does that have as much capacity for improvisation as the actual shooting of an image? Uh, well, that depends on the on the feature. Uh, I think with an Oliver Stone, yes, you have unlimited room to uh, to experiment in the edit. Uh, I'm sure a Stanley Kubrick feature would not be that way. You know, it's I'm sure very well planned and thought out. Um, but one of the interesting things is uh, between those two films, JFK and Natural Born Killers, there was a big change to uh, how films were edited. When you look at JFK, that would have been a six-hour film if they cut it linearly and didn't employ the montage. Uh, There's so many scenes and so much material that out of necessity to make it you know, a sizable, uh, digestible chunk of a film, they had to cut it apart and do this montage-style thing, which they, I think, you know... They exponentially went a little bit crazier with it on Natural Born Killers. So this movie, especially the opening scene, I think will look quite familiar to some younger fans of cinema in that you have a couple entering a diner and there's a kind of casual celebratory feel. And then all of a sudden there's this explosion of slow motion violence. And uh, it's it's really the, the casualness of the violence that I think will ring a bell with some viewers who are familiar with Quentin Tarantino, who is one of the kind of titans of American cinema right now. Who also wrote this. Who film. also wrote the story for, for Natural Born Killers. It's very early, I guess, after uh, Reservoir Dogs. And maybe, I think this came out the same year as Pulp Fiction. So I don't know when uh, exactly he was working on this, but this certainly has Quentin Tarantino's hands all over it. And I wonder if, I mean, this is a story of uh, of like grotesque violence and the title captures the dilemma perfectly. It's how much are these people like predisposed to violence? Like how much of it is nature? Mm. And then how much of it is learned and a result of like terrible decisions made by morally depraved people over and over again. And then with Stone and his obsession with the way that media shapes narratives. I mean, so his answer, I think, which I don't know if it's like the correct kind of liberal perspective now, but it's, you know, people who say that it's ridiculous to blame video games for like violent tendencies in youth. But I kind of feel like in 1994, Stone is saying, uh, you know, you. This is the really violent media culture we live in, and these are the consequences of that culture. Is that some? Is that? Is it's like ruminations on violence and media? Something that I don't know attracts you to this film. Is that something that you um, is one of the reasons why you picked it, or was it mostly the visual style, as you were saying? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I do. Uh, well, I really don't know. the The first thing, the first time I watched it, it is the visuals that stuck out. Um, so we have things like, uh, projections of, you know, too much TV when they kill the Indian fella. Um, and the, um, the psychedelic backdrops outside their windows that the technique that's used to kind of put you in the headspace of Mickey and Mallory is 
so far out there, but it works so well. Um, that was what initially attracted it to uh, initially attracted me to this film. But then after watching it, it really does kind of you know um, turns you around. There's uh, the scene in the prison where Woody Harrelson is talking about how he's a natural born killer. He goes into this beautiful and very cryptic monologue about violence and human nature. And at that point, the audience, in my opinion, or at least in me personally, I start to almost empathize with Woody Harrelson. And now after that, there's a scene where he shoots all the guards and he breaks out of prison, which is so strange because the film has just made me connect and feel for our main character. And now I'm rooting for him to be violent and to break out of prison. It's I'm now complicit in this violence that it's trying to, I don't know, uh, to show us so especially since the you know 1967 but going well back to the gangster fiction of the 30s the history of you know hollywood movies is a history of romantic vigilante violence i mean this you know mickey and mallory are quite clearly uh at least inspired by figures like bonnie and clyde played by warren Beatty and uh faye dunaway as well as uh the badlands couple i'm blanking on the the name of those characters in that terrence malick movie but you know these are figures who are kind of driven by like a public appetite for violence and romance, right? The, the way that, that's why I love that, you know, the interviews with the college kids who are like just goo-goo-eyed over this couple, they see counterculture heroes Absolutely. in these figures. And, you know, people who are familiar with The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Mad Men, you know, we're, you know, this is the era of like the anti-hero is by no means over in like mm. American popular culture. But there's something, like I was thinking about the difference between the way that Stone and Tarantino describes on-screen violence and i think that there's something so much more perverse about tarantino's use of violence than stone's and looking at this movie really solidified that for me because i think stone and it's all communicated visually you're right with the bombardment of the screen projections of images usually animals like eating one another Mm -hmm. but also the the all these like canted camera angles where you're always like diagonal or perpendicular it's like you're always off center with tarantino we get a bit more of a straightforward presentation. Big showpiece. And I think that encourages a bit more identification with the violent people than in Stone. Like, I always knew in Natural Born Killers, okay, these are some seriously messed up individuals. In Pulp Fiction, I'm like, all right, John Travolta and Samuel Jackson, shoot that guy, <laughs> you know? I don't know, if do you feel that difference between uh, Stone and Tarantino? I haven't really thought about it too much, but um, there is... Uh, some sort of hyper-realism to Tarantino's violence. It's it's still grounded in this kind of reality while Oliver Stone, uh, you know, to his silliest degree, can be kind of campy. This is not things. realism, right? Exactly. Like, he's it very is, upfront about that. It's very cartoonish at points. Um, and then, especially in Natural Born Killers, uh, the switching between these formats mm-hmm. of you're seeing images a mile a minute and uh, it doesn't allow you to kind of grasp into the the severity of the situation the actual violence of the situation while tarantino let's say reservoir dogs uh we have that one long shot of a guy getting his ear cut off it's you don't have time as a audience member to take a break to look away you are you're in it you know if if the the most representative moment of this movie is that one i've described i think the best scene and the most effective scene comes quite early on and that's the probably if anyone knows anything about this movie, it's the Rodney Dangerfield sequence where it's this TV sitcom laugh track I love parody yeah. right, of, of someone, of a dad sexually abusing his kid. It's and, horrific. Oh it's one of the most, uh, to me, I, I'm taken aback every time I see it because it's so uh, comedic, but it just it's so vulgar and depraved and it really gets me a little uncomfortable each time I watch it. Um, uh, it's just, spectacularly well done and if i mean if stone if what i'm getting from the movie is that stone is trying to show us like here are the images that we consume in popular media be wary of how they're presented because underneath them not even not even too far underneath right like there's something pretty sick but if there's a laugh it's like our you know innate response if we hear a laugh track we want to laugh this is not something that (laughs) that one should be laughing to um i want to transition to requiem for a dream but before we get there uh if you can identify any kind of connection between, you know, your history with this movie, you're watching this movie and how you approach your own making of movies. Like, is there like a kernel of like a takeaway from Natural Born Killers that you thought, okay, that's something that I want to try to achieve when I make a movie? Just a a small one. I mean, absolutely nothing from the production side. It was madness and chaos from everything I've read on that film. 
Um, but the experimentation. So, you know, one of the, the great things that I love about film is uh, to a degree, it's a science. Uh, you know, my go-to rule of thumb is just expose it properly. That's that's all I want to do. The science part has to be right. Expose it properly and you're doing your job. But the other part is the art of it, you know, uh, to frankly get a little weird. And that's what I really love about um, Natural Born Killers is uh, Richardson u- Richardson's use of highlights and on-screen projections, which um, I've mimicked those in a few projects that I've done because I think they're appropriate at the time when we use them and I really like them. And it's... um. You know, I don't think playing it safe is all that fun. So getting a little weird and experimental with your films is a great way to go. It's fun. Well, we're getting hopefully a little weird and experimental with Deep Focus on WNHH LP New Haven's. Not too weird and experimental, but just enough. Uh, New Haven's home for community radio. Uh, I'm talking with freelance cinematographer from New Haven, David Sikora. And we're talking about two movies that have had a big influence on his own approach to, to watching and making movies. And as we move from your first to your second, I also, you know, in addition to Tarantino having his hands all over Natural Born Killers, I feel like David Lynch's imprint is all over both of these movies, too, in that both Natural Born Killers and Requiem for a Dream describe these, like, inescapable nightmarish fantasies that are by no means it's by no means a realistic representation uh but it is something that it has like all of the like heroine inescapability of psychological realism where you like feel like you're in the heads of these people but you look at what they're experiencing you're like oh wait phew this isn't something that actually exists and then you get back in their heads and like oh wait maybe this is what's happened so let's uh with that rambly preamble requiem for a dream <laughs> uh darren aronofsky's 2000 uh drama starring jared leto marlon uh marlon waynes is that i think marlon okay marlon waynes uh, again the right waynes brothers ellen burston and jennifer connelly as four people in brighton beach brooklyn who experience as you were saying the manic idealism and kind of physical and emotional decay of drug abuse. Uh, this is a movie that I always I saw maybe when I was 14, and whenever I thought of the concept of a one-timer, a movie that one sees <laughs> once and then never sees again, this is the movie that came to mind. David, why is this not a one-timer? Or maybe it is. <laughs> no, it's uh, it was actually the opposite. This was, um, boy, what to say about this one? I think I saw it when I was fairly young, so it was... Uh, um, All I remember about the first time I watched it is the very end of the film. And I mean, it just drained me. I was, uh, I was a wreck more or less. And I think, you know, I'm still a young adult at the time that I'm seeing this, um, just discovering how magical and how impactful cinema is. And I remember this was probably one of the, the greatest emotional impacts that a film had had on me. Um, and that's probably why it sticks with me. Um, Could you describe a bit what about the the closing? Like, what what is it that hit you? Maybe tell us a bit about well, what happens in this closing and, and yeah. how did how did it hit you? Absolutely. So um, throughout this movie, we're watching these these people who um, you know it is night and day at the beginning, and the beautiful part once we get into is how this is actually photographed to to make this transition happen. Um, but we see these people that are pretty much full of life and the colors are bold and bright and they are having a great summer. And uh, to make ends meet, they start selling drugs and they're going to make their way out of it. And then slowly as life will have it, um, things start to fall apart a little bit. And uh, each of them falls into one particular addiction or another. Uh, they all get addicted to some kind of drug. Um, the photography of the film starts to change to uh, much colder lighting and different techniques are employed throughout and then at the end we have this series of beautiful gorgeous overhead shots of each person in utter despair and their addiction has completely consumed them um it it got violent at points and it is just a horrific horrific anti-drug uh message and it just leaves you devastated there's something that happens in this film between the photography the editing the performances and the music that takes you on such an emotional ride um, that, you know, when these cranes are booming up and the music is hitting you and you see these people rolled over in the fetal position and these beautiful, beautiful artistic shots, uh, it just left me devastated. And then I think I rewatched it probably a day or two later because it looked so good. You've, you've keyed <laughs> in on two very important uh, strategies of this movie. One is the music and also, you're right, the, the fetal positions that people are revealed to be kind of curled up in as they... 
uh, try to regress back to that try state and find some comfort. where they were not as you know completely lost mm-hmm. and out of control. I mean, this is, this movie is called Requiem for a Dream, and the Requiem part comes from you know these are you know you know requiems are uh, kind of memories for the dead. These musical pieces that reflect quite somberly upon uh, but on, upon a, a life that was. And here, I mean, it's interesting to think about. A requiem not just for people but for the dream I and mean, what is the dream that we that we have lost here but clearly I and mean, it's so interesting that this movie you know these are not people who discover drugs halfway through the movie these are users and also you know sellers of drugs really throughout maybe ellen burston's character is a bit of a exception there and that she does become addicted over the course of the movie but really from start to finish the jared leto marlon waynes jennifer connelly characters they all kind of start out as users but and this movie describes the extremities like the extreme of drug abuse right the incredible highs and then the incredible lows and so much of what makes this movie bearable even in its like most kind of visceral depictions of needles going into like oh jared leto's arm at the end but is the music I and mean, the chronos quartet playing this beautiful classical music clint manso that well, I think. oh no yeah it's um you know that is that is what makes it more than a one timer for me. But it's difficult. Like, do, do you cringe when watching this movie? I I do. I mean, I just rewatched it for the first time in years and years because eventually, after watching a movie over and over, you have to give yourself a break to get that fresh experience again. So I picked it up uh, just a few weeks ago, watched it for the first time, and I'd have to say over five years in one sitting, and it it got me again. You know, it just. Um, it's it's brutal um it really did i mean obviously it wasn't the same emotional impact as the first time i saw it but it really did hit me um and i did notice the the stylistic the technique a lot more the second time around i mean really from the very opening scene we have a split screen which is quite a jarring effect for the audience right you know that all of a sudden this is you know this is somewhat this is a work of art that's being manipulated to try to manipulate the audience but it so effectively communicates how no matter how proximate these characters are even there's a split screen use when jared leto and jennifer connelly are in bed and touching Mm -hmm. one another and you know that no matter how close they are there's still this like distance this distance that cannot be overcome even in the happy moments and why does it get not happy too yeah (sighs) what's so interesting about that film is that it's um it doesn't seem like it should work photographically it's uh there's a lot of let's call them gimmicks that are employed there's split screen time lapse uh snorri cam which is the camera mounted to the front or mm-hmm. rear of the talent so they don't move mm-hmm. but the outside world does these incredible close-ups of plungers depressing and the of quick edits of eyes them. you know pupils expanding exactly so it uses these techniques that are almost like a music video um and realistically that that shouldn't do it you need uh just close-ups and long beautiful takes to really build the drama and the emotion but at the end the cumulative effect of how everything comes together between the music the edit and the cinematography it does leave you devastated for something that realistically is almost shot like a an artsy music video it's um it's greater than the sum of its parts when it comes down to it it really does have a wallop at the end and that to me is um just amazing planning amazing uh I feel that they probably didn't improvise nearly as much as Natural Born Killers. They they knew what they wanted, they storyboarded it, and they went with it, and it just ended up working absolutely beautifully. So, I think these are opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to the, the way these films were made between uh, very strictly sticking to what you have planned and then letting all the chips fly like in Natural Born Killers. I'm, I'm so glad you described that difference that way because when I watched these movies, I was struck by how similar they were in their approach to describing extremes. I mean, if Natural Born Violence is the best, like, don't kill people ad, then this is like the best dare ad, right? Never exactly. do drugs, Reckon for Dream says. But, uh, but you're right. I mean, they do, even if they are tackling, you know, social ills and in pretty extreme contexts, they also, they feel very different they're both very experimental but you're right what there's something kind of much more clinical and just like inescapable about requiem for a dream natural born killers i didn't really know where it was going at any moment i knew that something bad was going to happen but and the movie kind of ends on that open ended note i mean these characters they go into the wood they they go on to continue with their lives there's no continuing of lives at the end of requiem this is kind of a, a full stop we only have about a minute and a half left and so i want to throw uh maybe one and a half unnecessarily big questions at you and that half one is same thing as for natural born killers 
when you think about Requiem in terms of influence on you, is there like a nugget that you want to say, okay, this is interesting that Requiem did this. I want to try to incorporate this into my work. Not all that much. Uh, the big takeaway that I have as a cinematographer from Requiem is uh, planning. So know what you need before you actually get on set uh, to understand what your edit is going to be. Um, because that movie, like I said, it seems so rigid in the planning to the final output that uh, going in with a plan when you're shooting something and knowing how it's going to cut together is half the battle there. It's very important to have. And then the, you know what I was going to add, I, I love to ask every filmmaker what the, what the kind of challenges and benefits of being a New Haven area filmmaker is. Um, but you know what? I'm going to leave that on the table for now and use it as an excuse to have you back on the show sometime soon and we can talk about your own work and about uh you know what what it's like to make movies in new haven that would be wonderful david sakura is a local freelance cinematographer based out of new haven uh and an award winner from the 48 hour film project new haven uh and now no longer uh, just a first timer but soon to be a second timer on deep focus so david thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you for having me all right coming up next a review of the new raul peck documentary i am not your negro with arnold gorlick but first let's hear a little bit of music from uh new haven's own ellison jackson a song called man from lowell Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. And for the second segment of today's show, I am very happy to say that I've got Arnold Gorlick from Madison Art Cinemas back in the studio. <laughs> we'll see if those, <laughs> those headphones fit perfectly. But Arnold, thank you for coming back. It's a pleasure to have you on. I'm always honored to be here. Thank you so much, Tom. All right. So in the limited time, we've got limited time for a really, uh, big, subject. A, a really big subject. But let me give a, a brief introduction to this movie and then we'll We'll uh, have our conversation. So the movie we're going to talk about today is called I Am Not Your Negro, which is still playing out at Madison Art Cinemas, Arnold's Theater out in Madison, Connecticut. Uh, it is Raul Peck's 2016 Oscar-nominated documentary that's organized around an unfinished book on race in America by the author, essayist, and novelist James Baldwin. Uh, so writing to his literary agent in 1979, Baldwin outlined a book that would describe the history and present circumstances of race in America through reflections on the deaths of three of his friends who were murdered in the 1960s, uh, Megar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. Baldwin only wrote 30 pages of the book, and excerpts from those pages and his letters to his agent form the movie's narration, as read by Samuel L. Jackson. While the images are taken from a wealth of documentary photographs and footage, some from Baldwin's own time, including TV appearances on The Dick Cavett Show, uh, a Cambridge University debate with William F. Buckley Jr., some from relevant movies, some from the Jim Crow South, and some from 2016. Uh, Arnold, when we were talking about the movie briefly over the phone earlier this week, you singled out a kind of single scene as really uh, being the one most memorable to you and maybe most representative of what this movie is trying to do. And that is a sequence when we see Doris Day on the screen and we hear James Baldwin's words as read by Samuel L. Jackson 
commenting upon the impossibility of white America's claims to innocence and this kind of race-based power at the same time. And then we see something uh, that is not the image of Doris Day, but rather maybe the inverse and complement to it. So maybe could you uh, uh, tell us why that scene was kind of at the forefront of your mind when you were thinking about this movie? And, and what did you think of I Am Not Your Negro? I Am Not Your Negro is clearly one of the 10 best movies of 2016 and already one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, it just worked out. I thought we were going to lose it today on Thursday, but I felt towards it kind of like a beloved child leaving my household. I was glad we got to hold it over another week. We'll play daily at, starting tomorrow at 1 o'clock and 5.25. That jarring scene was where he's contrasting what he called the grotesque innocence of... Uh, white society in the United States. And he would show us certain movie images that informed the lives of uh, the pajama game, a bunch of ro- white people running and having fun and just being innocent in the fifties. And then Doris day wondering about her love, who's obviously coming over for dinner and she's imagining and fantasizing what she'll do when he arrives in the nice kitchen with the well-appointed kitchen and the wine glasses. And he refers to that grotesque innocent and contrasts it with the lives of millions of African-Americans at that point in the country, and he transitions from Doris Day looking up to an archival photo of a lynching with the hang- two black- hanging black men, of course, with their heads looking up as the contrast in experiences between white and black. I thought it was valid, and I knocked me out of my seat. I didn't, expe- I didn't expect it coming. And how to reconcile those two points of view is um, what he strives to do. He doesn't so much seem to reconcile it as he poses questions that uh, white America has to address to itself. Because the problem in some way, and he believes, I don't believe, is the responsibility of overcoming this is not all African-American. It has to do with white values and white perceptions of African-Americans. So I, I was talking with a friend about this movie uh, over the weekend, and he's a very big James Baldwin fan, and he was a little frustrated with this movie because he found that, like, he thought that it somewhat flattened out the critique of American race relations by a very by someone who Baldwin, especially in books like The Fire Next Time, where he says that race as a social construct is something that we as a society have to move past in order to achieve any semblance of democracy or equality or or kind of freedom for everyone in this country. And I think that uh, in, in that Baldwin, you know, is as ready to criticize the Christian church up in Harlem as he is ready to criticize the nation of Islam out in Chicago, as he is ready to criticize the hypocrisy of kind of white stockbrokers downtown. But I do and think... And the NAACP And too. the NAACP as well. And he's really someone who has kind of a foot in both worlds. There's a certain critical distance that Baldwin always has. When, and that comes through in this movie as well, right? When we think about where he was when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, when Meg Evers was assassinated, when Malcolm X was assassinated, he was in, you know, some, a restaurant in London, he's in Puerto Rico, he's kind of poolside in L.A., not <laughs> to the detriment of Baldwin, but I think this movie really captures the... Um, the the well, kind was, of torn the poolside nature. in L.A. was writing the screenplay for the autobiography of Malcolm right, X. Right. Yes, but just to think about that that environment of relative calm and comfort compared with what's going on in his head as he tries to grapple with the assassinations of these friends. Did you? I when if this movie is an opportunity to spend an hour and a half with James Baldwin, do you feel like you really got the full breadth of the kind of complexity of this individual, or was this uh, more of a kind of pointed political commentary in our current moment? I think so. I think he had to leave the United States, as he said so, where he felt safe on the streets of Paris, where these issues of race didn't enter into his life, gave him perspective to be able to look back and to view himself and to view our culture from that perspective, which you can't see the forest for the trees when you're in the middle of it and, and so bound up with it. But when he saw, I think, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I don't remember her name, the 15-year-old girl who was being jeered and heckled where she sat and where she walked as she was entering that school in Little Rock, Arkansas, mm-hmm. and saying that somebody should have been standing with that girl, not letting her go alone, not letting her go alone, this propelled him to return and to come back and to work, what he uh, to make a life's work of thinking, combating, and discussing the issue of race in America and power. And that's really where this movie begins, and it's such a powerful moment, right, where he says, I, I knew that I could no longer stay in Paris, but I had to return to the country of my origin. And To his I, credit. 
Oh yes, yeah, and to our benefit. I mean, we are we are so lucky to have the word, you know, the words of James Baldwin to help us grapple with, you know, this this unending kind of history of cruelty uh, towards uh, you know black people in this country. And I think what Baldwin so accurately describes is that the state of Black America is the state of the entirety of America. The way that I mean, the, the way this movie ends is with the question, "Why do you need an N word?" An N word is something that people in power create. Uh, to kind of keep an, another person down, but it, it says so much more about the person using it than about the person who is being called it. And he he asks white America to ask themselves why they need the word. Yeah, it, one of the things what, that I oh. what is it? How, what does it resonate in them? What I'm sorry, but that's about it. No, I I love I, whenever I read or listen to Baldwin, I always think here's someone who is kind of preternaturally gifted, who almost knows all of the answers to like the problems that beset America. But he's not condescending enough to tell everyone this is exactly what you need to do. He says, right. here are the questions that you have to grapple with, but me telling you how to do what to do next is not going to affect any actual change. Um, and, and that's the true approach to being to leading a critical life and a philosophical life. Really, it's the questions, not the answers. The people have the conclusions. The people that watch the networks that argue toward an objective are not what we, are not what we want. We want people to pose a treadmill of questions in a Socratic manner. Beyond that, um, the one of the things that comes through which resonates with me because uh, I had a dear friend who died in 1983 his name was Ken Mills he taught philosophy at Yale he was a black man from Trinidad but he was able to really understand not as an African American what was going on in the United States in a different way so in one way he would be trusted by a white community as not being American and the other uh, by the black community is not being uh, of here. One who, like Baldwin, had a perspective. And he made it clear to me what the the quotidian life of being African-American, no matter how well situated you are, there's a certain psychic war that's constant and subliminal that's going on that's putting you in a certain role in this country that's clearly subordinate and, un, and unearned, and that African-American them, people themselves wind up sharing the worst assumptions about themselves of the dominant culture. This is one of the costs of it. He zeroes in on that without referring to it, I think, specifically of what this constant psychic war, which is obviously still going on. But what also resonates so clearly today is when he began writing, he was black, poor, and homosexual. And what became the best movie of this year, and deservedly so, I think, uh, Moonlight which followed the life of Chiron in three stages, who was black, poor, and homosexual. So he was asked, so he said, boy, he says, you really hit the bottom of the barrel there. He says, no, I thought I hit the jackpot. <laughs> what a wonderful connection to me. I hadn't thought about that, how yeah. Moonlight, one of the most celebrated movies, and of course the ultimate winner of Best Picture, is in some ways describes the the life, and at least I mean, Baldwin did not have the a similar life trajectory as as uh, Chiron and Moonlight, but um, but I think you know I think that one maybe uh, not of Chiron but Terrell McCraney or Terrell who, right. who is oh, a composite in that and Barry Jenkins sure Barry Jenkins became as well. Barry uh, James Baldwin's in um, vindicated their lives by leading literary lives. Oh, what a wonderful connection that is, you know. But I that also reminds me of a moment in I Am Not Your Negro when Baldwin is reflecting on Bobby Kennedy's. Uh, presumption that in 40 years, you know, 40 years from the early 1960s, the United States may have an African-American president. And what I so love about Baldwin's comment is that, you know, on the one hand, this could be perceived, I don't know if you saw uh, Get Out yet, Jordan Peele's movie, but this could be, <laughs> I've been trying, this could be perceived know. as the kind of epitome of white liberal generosity and saying, and also, I mean, maybe from some on the right, this is, you know, outlandishly progressive to say that there would be a black president and also Coincidentally enough, that's kind of when we had a black president about 40 right. years after Bobby Kennedy predicted it. But Baldwin's response is not one of eager anticipation. It's you know kind of outrage at the audacity of a white person to say, okay, in 40 years, you if people good. who have been here for 400 years, if you're good, can be um, a black president. And I kind of wonder if, you know, considering how Moonlight was such an incredible critical success, but is not, I mean, your theater excluded is not really a box office success. I mean, this is not a movie that no. has penetrated the kind of American mainstream of movies. I wonder if Baldwin would look at it kind of similarly to how uh, 
Bobby Kennedy, his response to Kennedy's um, suggestion that there could be a black president, just the mere fact of a movie of this stature doesn't mean that, you know, race well, relations I myself, and sex relations Bobby, I was a young, I must have been a boy uh, when Bobby Kennedy said it. And I remember listening to it and it sounded perfectly enlightened and reasonable to me and mm -hmm. ho a, a hopeful statement. I mean, I'm a different person now. It was utterly, in the most negative way, audacious and condescending. Um, now that I think of it, I mean, why not then? Why? But you know what, to my ears, and I think that this is what Jordan Peele gets at in his satire about the suburbs and what um, Baldwin is so astute, especially, I want to make sure we talk about a little bit the analysis of the Sidney Poitier and uh, John Wayne movies uh, in I Am Not Your Negro, and that Baldwin describes, because of his unique vantage point as being in two different worlds, he can describe both responses perfectly adequately. The despair that black audiences felt when Sidney Poitier jumps from the train in The Defiant Ones <laughs> to save Tony Curtis, and also the the hope that white audiences felt when they saw Sidney Poitier jump because they thought, okay, maybe we won't be hated. Right, that's the urge. It's like not to be despised is the ultimate urge, and and I uh, I I found that just just fascinating. And he does that with John Wayne too. I mean, white, one audience sees him as a vigilante hero, another sees him as someone about to string them up. Also, his observation that those people who use violence and force rarely does the outcome they expected occur. And beyond that, it reminds me again of my friend Ked Mills who said, you know, a government is far from its strongest when the tanks are in the street. You can be sure that's when a government government is its weakest. As uh, you know, as with movies this deep, we almost never have enough time to talk about them. But the last question I want to throw your way, Arnold, is as someone who has been screening this movie at your theater and is very excited to have it there, um, could you tell us a little bit about how audiences are responding to it and how how you feel about this movie as a theater owner? Is this something that you you want to book there because of your like the ideological resonance, or do you feel like? This is important for audiences to see. Are people seeing it? <laughs> One, the audiences tend to leave almost unanimously speechless. Uh, two, uh, I've refined the mission of the theater. Um, it's tough being an art house. We tend to be the highest grossing art house in the state by title. That having been said, uh, art houses don't gross what Star Wars does and so on and so forth. And we don't even get income at the concession stand like the mainstream theaters do. But I'm committed to always playing the finest movie that's out at any given time that engages the adult mind, the adult moral mind, uh, at the expense of some box office and to keep a reliable mission that people can depend on when they come to the theater almost blindly. Interesting thing is uh, almost no African-Americans. There hasn't been an uptick in African-American attendance mm. for that or for Moonlight, as there was for Precious and 12 Years a Slave. Mm. Wow. that's. I mean, I feel like just anecdotally that... When I've seen Moonlight, uh, I don't. I didn't see I'm Not Your Negro here in New Haven, but when I saw Moonlight, it was a primarily African American audience. So I um, in New York it, here in in New Haven in New Haven, but it's very different demographics. Uh, Madison right. in New Haven, but uh, Arnold Gorlick is the the founder and owner of Madison Art Cinemas. Arnold, uh, how much longer are you playing I'm Not Your Negro? And and where is your theater? Where can people find it and and see all these wonderful movies? It's in the center of Madison, Connecticut, next to the post office, across the street from R.J. Julia Booksellers. I Am Not Your Negro will play through and including Thursday, March 23rd, daily at 1 o'clock and 525. Great. This is, I mean, it may not have won the best documentary, but this is truly one of the best movies of the year and, and well worth checking out. So Arnold, thank you so much for coming on the show and for My pleasure. sharing thank some thoughts on it. Thank you for inviting me. And we will we'll have you back soon. And uh, you can find a complete archive of Deep Focus shows at deepfocusradio.com. And coming up next is Elisa's Culture Cocktail Hour.